0: You're listening to Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belial, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love, Maine Radio Facebook page or www.lovemainradio.com for details. Now here are a few highlights from this week's program.
1: Culturally, we love caffeine. There's a long history, and there's a long history of, of safe usage of moderate caffeine consumption. And the coffee culture that we've developed in the U.S. is pretty phenomenal. People really do love caffeine, and people particularly love coffee, I think.
2: I think it's nice that people are appreciating quality. A lot of people are attracted to the great beers and the great wines and the great restaurants, and I feel like coffee's kind of that last thing that everybody's now starting to pay attention to, which is really great.
0: Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank.
3: This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 184, Caffeinated, airing for the first time on Sunday, March 22nd, 2015. Mainers love their coffee, and why not? We have a diversity of roasters, creating distinctive blends within our state, and many unique coffee houses within which we might enjoy our cup of joe. Today we speak with main author Murray Carpenter about his book Caffeinated, How Our Daily Habit Helps, Hurts, and Hooks Us, and Bard Coffee manager and longtime barista Brittany Feltovic. You'll hear some interesting insights about our favorite bean. Thank you for joining us. People who know me well know that I am largely a tea drinker, although I do have a weakness for espresso in some cases, and today we're going to speak with somebody about why that might be. In fact, I actually know it's the caffeine in it, and so does Murray Carpenter. He is a journalist and author. His book Caffeinated was published by Hudson Press in 2014. He has a master's in environmental studies and two grown children. He lives with his wife in Belfast. You know all about this caffeine thing, don't you?
1: I know a fair amount about caffeine now, yeah.
3: Yeah, this was a great book. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. It's caffeinated. How our daily habit helps, hurts, and hooks us. And you really went through some things that I didn't had put no thought to whatsoever.
1: Well, good. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, th- I think a lot of people find that their their daily habit is a little more interesting when they get you know get to know it a little more intimately. I would say.
3: So, tell me why it was that this became something you had an interest in.
1: Well, th- this project really has its genesis uh, thirty years ago when I was an undergraduate studying psychology at the University of Colorado. I was uh, at that point what uh, the researchers, the caffeine researchers, would call caffeine naive, which is you know, coffee wasn't a part of my life. And between the the house I lived in with my friends off campus and and the library, there was a great coffee shop, and uh, this this was in the early years of sort of the gourmet coffee boom. And it was a coffee shop bookstore. We used to hang out there and drink coffee on our way to school. And I noticed, because I was caffeine naive, maybe I noticed more than most people, how a couple of cups of coffee would really help me to focus uh, for studying and it would help me to take on a, a big writing project. So I didn't take it for granted and ended up senior year uh, writing a, a paper for a senior psychology seminar about caffeine and cognition. So that I've had this interest sort of uh, in the back of my mind for quite a while.
3: This adventure brought you really all over the world. You spent time um, down in Central America looking at where coffee came from. You attempted to go to a caffeine factory in China. I think you made it as far as the gates, if I'm yes, remembering that's right, yeah. correctly. Yes. And you've spoken with experts here in the United States as well. Did you think that you were going to be on such a journey when you started this?
1: No, that's a great question. I had no idea. I. When I started the book, uh, you know, it was around the time that energy drinks were becoming controversial, and and my interest in caffeine was sort of rekindled, and I knew there was a story here. I, I had no idea where it would lead, um, and, and so yes, it, it it took me to places that I really didn't anticipate, and that's part of the reason it, it ended up, I'm, it, it took me more than three years from when I started researching the book until I finished it.
3: I'm interested in caffeine because as a physician, I know that there is an impact on health. You know, I don't know what the long-term impact is from um, caffeine on health. I'm not sure that any of us really quite know that yet. But short-term, I have seen patients who have come in with panic attacks, anxiety. Um, I've had triathletes who rely heavily on caffeine to enhance their performance. Um, I've seen ha- people who have tachycardia, elevated heart rate, and this is something that you talk about in the book.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned anxiety and panic first because uh, most of us, uh, and, and, and I think its popularity indicates this, most of us handle moderate caffeine consumption quite well, but there are some people for whom it can really be a problem, and people who suffer from anxiety, and particularly those with panic disorder, people who, who uh, can are are people who experience panic attacks really are, can have problems with caffeine and and this is one of its it's uh, better known problems but it's it's an area that's that uh, scientists are continuing to research to understand exactly how it is that caffeine affects people who are anxious but that's you know that's certainly one of the bigger uh, health problems and and you know it's worth noting people who are anxious often tend to avoid caffeine, but not everyone. I've, I've had some interesting correspondence from people who who didn't really associate the anxiety they were experiencing with their caffeine consumption. But something you didn't mention is sleep, and that's another big issue. Uh, a lot of people, um, as you know, you, you, you see a, a lot of patients, so many people don't sleep well, and so many of us use caffeine, and caffeine really can disrupt sleep. And so... This is not to say that everybody who uses caffeine would sleep better if they didn't take caffeine, but I really do think it's important for someone who suffers from sleeplessness or insomnia to at least try to experiment with their caffeine consumption to see if it, it helps. It won't help everyone, but some people it might.
3: You talked about being sensitive to caffeine. So some people are more sensitive. Some people are less sensitive. Uh, you, in the book, you mentioned that people who smoke and uh, women who are on birth control pills, both of these things influence how we metabolize caffeine.
1: Yeah, you're right. And, and again, it's, it's interesting because it's a drug, and we often don't think of it as, as a drug, but because it's a, a drug, it, it will affect you differently uh, depending on what else is going on in your body. So one of the strange things is that smokers tend to metabolize caffeine twice as quickly as the rest of us, which is to say a cup of coffee will have half of the effect on a smoker. Uh, a, A woman on birth control pills will metabolize it, you know, again, this is approximate, but approximately twice as slowly. And So, and a lot of this has to do with the rate at which the uh, liver produces the enzymes that break down caffeine caffeine into its into its byproducts. But uh, so, it's really worth noting this because let's say you have someone who's uh, a big man and he's a smoker, and he's sitting down with a smaller woman, and she's on birth control pills. You know, he he may need five or six cups of coffee to have the same effect that she has. Now laid on top of this is is another very interesting aspect, which is we all metabolize caffeine differently just due to uh, individual variability. And a lot of this tends to be genetic. So, you know, if you uh, tend to consume a lot of caffeine, then then probably your brother or sister and parents might. Uh, if you don't, it might be, you know, again, a genetic trait. But this is all to say that, you know, a cup of coffee, It is not going to have the same effect on on any of us. And and the levels of variability can be pretty profound.
3: For a long time, we've been trying to understand if there is a long-term impact of caffeine upon the body. One area that still remains unclear, but we think we're getting more um, evidence in, is in pregnancy. Women who consume caffeine in larger quantities, I believe, they are more likely to have a small, for gestational age, or a small birth weight baby.
1: Yeah, and this is an area again. Even after many years of research, people are still learning more about this. So uh, often, doctors will suggest that women who are pregnant uh, limit their caffeine consumption to 200 milligrams a day or less, and this could be you know as little as 12 to 15 ounces of coffee. Um, There, there is some new research from Scandinavia that suggests that even at 200 milligrams a day, you may have a smaller slightly smaller child. Uh, it's not that the child would necessarily be less healthy, but it is suggesting that even at that level, even at 200 milligrams a day, the caffeine uh, could be having an effect. So it's one, of, it's one of the areas of caffeine in health that has gotten a fair amount of attention, but I think deserves more, and again, more research. But yeah, I, I think uh, this is the reason that doctors suggest that, that pregnant women limit their caffeine consumption.
3: And yet there is a side of caffeine that um, is, I, I guess, some people would consider positive. We know that it actually increases alertness, it and enables us to concentrate better, um, it helps athletes. And I, I think that what I'm remembering is it's a three milligram or four milligram per kilogram dose that is
4: useful.
1: You're absolutely right. And, and again, this is one of the things that surprised me in researching the book. Uh, again, going back to college, I used to race bicycles in college. And so even when I was first learning about caffeine and coffee, I knew that if you took a strong cup of coffee before a race, you'd get a little bit of a boost. In the recent years, uh, exercise ph- physiologists have figured out you know, much more precisely what the best dose is and how it can benefit you. And, and you're right. So three to six milligrams per kilo of body weight. Which would be, you know, for a 180 pound guy like me, maybe 250 milligrams, you know, a a really good, strong 12 or 16 ounce cup of coffee, will not just improve your performance, but it'll improve it significantly. And which is to say, uh, on a race of approximately an hour's duration, I would reduce my time probably between 1% and 3%. And this would often be the winning margin in most of these races. And so, yeah, it's, it's pretty dramatic. And uh, it's, it's perfectly legal. And this is the other really interesting aspect of this is because it really is, I, I think there's no question, it's a performance-enhancing drug. And it's a legal performance-enhancing drug. And the reason is this, the exact dosage that would benefit you or I most before a race is the same amount that a coffee drinker would be consuming every single day so it's it's pretty remarkable and i think it's one of those um one of those aspects of caffeine that's underappreciated and that's why there's so many uh gels and uh you know foods that are specially formulated for athletes not for triathletes marathoners
3: yeah you've brought a bunch of things with you today you have um, shot blocks and you have shot gels, and you have, uh, I don't know if that's a five-hour energy. I mean, there's there's so many things now that caffeine is in. And K-cups, you have a K-cup in here. So yes. there's just caffeine, and that's not even, we haven't even, like, that's just scratching the surface. Most sodas have caffeine yes, in them. Yes, I've
1: got a Coca-Cola bottle here, too. Yes, you're right, it's it's everywhere. And I think of it often as, um, you know, if you go into a convenience store, here in Portland, anywhere, you uh, Back in the cooler, you have uh, you know, a few doors full of sodas. Virtually all of the sodas are caffeinated. All of the top five, eight of the top, talent, top 10 selling soft drinks in the US. Right next door, you have energy drinks. Of course, they're caffeinated. You have a whole aisle of, uh, or a, a counter now of, of coffee in the back there. Get up towards the front. And the counter is is cluttered up with with energy shots, and then if you you know there's probably an aisle with uh, over the counter stuff like um, Vivarin and Nodos, and it's really no exaggeration to say if you know if you're in a little convenience store anywhere in the U.S., something caffeinated is 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 within arm's reach at every moment, and this is part of what I came to uh, to think about that that I think we don't recognize it's it's ubiquity its importance in our lifestyle and we don't associate the fact that we drink soda with caffeine and we don't you know we we don't think about uh, five-hour energy as just pure caffeine which really is most of what's giving you the effect so yeah there's there's an incredible diversity and abundance of new caffeinated products on the market these days
3: here on love main radio we've long recognized the link between health and wealth Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial.
4: Wouldn't it be great if we could spend our days doing all the things we dreamed of while gazing up at the stars on a crystal clear night? Yet for most people, and I include myself in that group, the realities of daily living prevent it from happening. We all have responsibilities to our employers, our families, people who rely on us to be there for them. But what if you could get to a place where you were able to reinvent yourself and start a new journey that was more fulfilling? What if you could define what true north meant and find your star and start walking towards it? What if you had the money to embark on a second life because financial worry had fallen off your radar? This, my friends, is what I call the seventh state of your financial evolution. While I'm certainly not there yet, I'm here to help you get there. It's time to evolve, get in touch with Shepherd Financial, and
0: we'll help you evolve with your money. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. Love, Maine Radio was brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com.
3: I was very concerned to read about the way that we come to produce caffeine, because we know that caffeine is in coffee beans, we know that's in cacao beans, so in chocolate. Um, I think there are a few other natural products that grow with caffeine in them. But much of the caffeine that is in sodas, if not all of the caffeine that's in sodas or these gels or the five-hour energy, is actually produced synthetically, and with I guess, proprietary secrets involved. So we don't even really know the chemicals that are going into this stuff. And from what I read in your book, the synthetic caffeine glows. It glows blue. That can't be good.
1: Yeah. So I think they've been able to produce it so that it doesn't glow as much anymore. But I don't even know. And and yes, it is a somewhat secretive process. Uh, And let me back up on this, this difference. Uh, caffeine, uh, there there are two ways to extract it, to to produce caffeine, the caffeine powder itself. And one way is to extract it from a a coffee bean. And, And I've toured a decaffeination facility in Texas that decaffeinates like 60 million pounds of coffee annually, and they produce about a million pounds of caffeine. But as I started doing my research, I realized we're using more than 15 million pounds of powdered caffeine in this country annually. Most of it blended into soft drinks. And I didn't know where it came from. And as I investigated, I I learned that most of it is synthesized, as you say. So it's made from its chemical precursors. So one way to think of this is instead of sort of carving it away from the coffee bean, you're actually cobbling it together in, in a pharmaceutical plant from urea and other chemical precursors.
3: Which, as you point out, that's cat pee.
1: Yeah, well, it smells like it. Yeah, it smells it's, like caffeine. Yeah, right. And and it's it's a right. It's a similar. It, when people think of urea, they think of of urine because it's a form of nitrogen. That's, yeah, right. Um, but yeah, so you can you can produce it from from urea and these other chemical precursors. The the actual product, the caffeine you're making in a synthetic caffeine plant or you're extracting in a, from a natural product, should be the same. I think the concern is. A lot of these plants, like the one I tried to visit in China, are very are, are not only under-regulated, they're, they're pretty opaque. They, they don't want visitors. I approached uh, caffeination facilities in Germany, India, China, and they all uh, denied my request to visit just to see the process, as I had at the uh, plant in, in Texas. So yeah, most of the caffeine, most of the caffeine we're importing for soft drinks, et cetera in this country is is synthetic as opposed to natural because it's a cheaper way to do it.
3: And that's, I guess, the thing that um, I am bothered by is that we already know that there are are health effects, good and bad, of caffeine. But what about the, you know, what about the chemicals? What about the things that we don't even really think about we might be consuming on a regular basis? Because as you point out in your book, the, um, the use of soda has actually surpassed the use of Um, coffee as a delivery vehicle. And now younger people are on college campuses drinking five-hour energy and Monster and and caffeinated drinks. And it's not not something we should be ignoring.
1: It's not. And so uh, a couple of big issues there. First of all, I guess I'm not as concerned about chemical contamination of the caffeine powder itself uh, just because we're taking it in such small quantities. So Uh, Like a 64th of a teaspoon would be the amount in a Coca-Cola. And so it would take a lot of contamination to give you a significant harm. I do think there's significant health issues that that are worth discussing about these products made with caffeine powder. And uh, one of them is, as you mentioned, with all these energy drinks, and this is something FDA is looking at now, are the other non-caffeine constituents, either by themselves or in concert with caffeine, Causing some harm, so this is taurine. Uh, they have there. There are a number of additives to these energy drinks that probably don't have much of a stimulant effect, uh, but may have a health consequence. It's not clear. Uh, FDA is looking into that. That's one issue. I think the bigger issue in terms of health is really the issue of sugars, uh, of uh, the simple sugars that are in these soft drinks. We, we know the association between sugary soft drinks and sugar-sweetened drinks and obesity. Obesity is a huge issue. And the link with caffeine here is that it's the caffeine in the soft drinks that often tends to really reinforce that behavior of consuming soft drinks, which is to say, if you reach one day for a, a, a sugary soft drink without caffeine uh, and, and the next day for the, the one with caffeine, you're more inclined to go back to the caffeinated one. And, you know, this is something that Coca Cola and Pepsi and Dr. Pepper have known for a century.
3: And it's also, as you have written about, um, possibly causing insulin resistance. So if you have somebody who's reaching for that caffeinated sugary beverage and they keep reaching for that caffeinated sugary beverage over time, their receptors are not going to be doing what they're supposed to be and they're Possibly going to become diabetic.
1: Yeah, this is this is something that that anyone who is either diabetic or pre-diabetic should certainly uh, be interested in and, and be discussing with their doctor. But yeah, that's that's that is one of the concerns.
3: On the other side of it, there is a history to caffeinated products. I mean, we've had chocolate and coffee in their pure forms for years and years and years, and it's something that there it, there is an important cultural aspect to this.
1: There's a really important cultural aspect, and this was another shock to me in, in uh, reporting the book, is is how far back this goes. So I visited an area in Mexico. This was on the w- the border of what's now Chiapas, uh, southern Mexico and Guatemala, a low coastal plain called the Soconusco region, and it's humid and kind of uh, uh, swampy and hot, perfect place to grow cacao. And 3,500 years ago, people were already uh, consuming these frothy chocolate drinks there and you know we often don't think of, of chocolate as being very caffeinated because we consume it in such dilute forms but I think the way that they were consuming it and you really just mashing up cacao beans and drinking this frothy chocolate drink they were getting a fair amount of caffeine and I think that the caffeine was a big part of the allure all the way back then and around the same time in, in China and in Asia people were learning that if they had a you know a tea leaf soaked in hot water, they would get the same benefit. And um, coffee came on the scene much later. I mean, probably just fifteen hundred years ago. But yeah, culturally, we 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 love we love caffeine. There's a long history, and there's a long history of, of safe usage of you know moderate caffeine consumption. And uh, you know the the coffee culture that we've developed in the U.S. is 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 pretty phenomenal. It's 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 uh, you know people really do love caffeine, and people particularly love coffee, I think.
3: There's also an environmental impact to to coffee, to growing, for example, um, growing coffee beans, and what some People are doing with the rainforests to grow more coffee beans, Um, but people are responding to that as well. You know, the shade-grown, fair trade. This is something we're paying attention to more.
1: It is, and uh, that's that's something that I didn't focus on much in the book, but my reporting led me to uh, early on. Is that yes, there are there can be significant environmental impacts to, for example, coffee consumption. And uh, what I hadn't realized is how many different certifying schemes there are. So, you know, there's, there's um, organic, there's fair trade, there's bird friendly, um, you know, rainforest, uh, you know, all these different groups are certifying coffees now. I do think there's some value in that. And, and I think consumers also have to be uh, maybe a little more savvy than in the old days and finding out, you know, how is their coffee certified and what exactly does that mean? But yeah, I think people uh, people are interested in knowing what the environmental impact of their, their daily habit is.
3: So let's talk about K-cups. You brought in the K-cups. Um, it was interesting for me to read about the history of Green Mountain Coffee. I, was, I went to medical school in Vermont, and the, it, this came to be in Vermont, the Green Mountain Coffee guy, who actually first got his money through um, rolling papers
1: Yes, that was that was interesting. I didn't know that. So Bob Stiller, who was a, the entrepreneur who's behind Green Mountain Coffee Roasters, uh, first made his fortune $3 million uh, by developing this company, Easy Wider, to produce a wider rolling paper in the 1970s. When he and his partner sold the company, uh, then Bob Stiller was in Vermont, and he, he had one of those experiences. He tasted a cup of coffee that, that just knocked his socks off, you know, freshly roasted, freshly ground, delicious. Bought the company, and that became Green Mountain Coffee Roasters.
3: And he continued to innovate.
1: He and he he continued to innovate. He was really shrewd in this respect. He saw the 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 single serving pod revolution coming more clearly and and earlier than others in in the U.S. And he first partnered with a Massachusetts startup called Keurig, and then bought it. And so. Uh, the Keurig machine and the K-Cup started off competing in, in really the coffee pod wars against uh, Nestle, against Sara Lee, against Kraft, against all these huge multinational companies and at that time Green Mountain really was, as you know, like a, a crunchy sort of uh, regional coffee company. They went up against these multinational coffee giants and won. I mean they won going away. They, just last month GE announced, get this, a refrigerator that has a Keurig machine in the door. So yeah, uh, Keurig is is really, uh, they've really taken off.
3: But you look at these little cups and I'm all about enjoying caffeine, but I shudder to think how much plastic we're throwing away um, on a daily basis by using the single serving method.
1: Yeah, so it's pretty remarkable and, and one of the the elements of my book that they got a lot of attention is that I calculated that the 2011 production of K-cups, if, if you line them up end to end, they would encircle the globe six times at the equator. So it's a lot of K-cups. Uh, updating that figure for the 2013, they would encircle the globe 10.5 times at the equator. So there's a lot of plastic here. One of the challenges of uh, with with K cups is is it's plastic. It's it's um, for recyclers. Is it's plastic and it's foil and it's organic matter all in one unit. So it's really hard to recycle. To, you know, the people who like K cups uh, and the the people who advocate for them, and there is some legitimacy to this. They will say that you can extract more coffee more efficiently from less, you know, coffee bean in this. So the eleven grams in a little K cup. Would would make a, a stronger cup of coffee than say if I was using my Melita filter at home, and also that there's less waste because you're not making a coffee pot and then throwing out the rest at the end of the day. So there are some interesting issues, but if you just look at the the issue of the waste at the end of the day in your house, um, you know a lot of people don't like that a bit. Green Mountain uh, again last month or maybe in December said that by 2020, you know still a long way out, they hope to have a, a fully recyclable K cup, and I did see when I toured the plant in 2010, I saw a uh, a, a paper K cup that they they were using. It was a prototype they were using for tea, but yeah, these these little pods are are interesting. And, and there's one other aspect of these pods that's fascinating, which is the the cost. If you look at the per pound cost for a coffee bean, the the roasted and ground coffee that goes into a K cup would cost about 12 to 15 dollars, say at Hannaford. Once it's in the K-cup, the per pound value is closer to $35 to $55 you know, per pound. And that's the way you make a billion dollars with coffee.
3: One way that um, we've kept up the American interest in coffee and caffeinated be- uh, beverages is in the military. This was a big part of, I know that actually in the military we used to supply soldiers with cigarettes during the World War, um, Second World War, and we also have been plying them with caffeine.
1: Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, One of the researchers who was a a primary source for my book, Harris Lieberman, studies this very thing: caffeine in the military. And he does it from a a military research lab in Natick, Massachusetts. One of the tests that he did was uh, he followed Army SEALs during Hell Week. uh, Sorry, Navy SEALs during Hell Week, uh, which is the the week when they're um, they're taking their final test to see if they can really have what it takes to be a SEAL. And they, uh, they're up most of the night. Uh, they're in and out of the water. They're practically hypothermic. They're doing extreme things, carrying boats over their head, doing rescues, practicing marksmanship, all sorts of crazy stuff. In the middle of this week, when they were the most sleep deprived and uh, really sort of uh, exhausted, he, Harris Lieberman ran them through a battery of tests to see how they would perform with and without caffeine. And in virtually every scenario, uh, the caffeine caffeine helped uh, enhance their performance on a a battery of tests. The only thing it didn't help was uh, marksmanship, and it didn't harm marksmanship. Uh, That's a long-winded way of saying, you know, the the situations that soldiers might be in in the field uh, where they're sleep-deprived, but they need to remain alert and vigilant is exactly the kind of situation in which caffeine can help. So the military's developed a, a whole battery of products, uh, caffeinated energy bars, caffeinated gum, uh, you name it. And they have rations that, that include these various products.
3: In the end, I didn't come away with the feeling that, that you were saying caffeine was good or bad. I think I just had the sense that you really wanted people to be more aware, more aware of sort of the range. You know, there's this range over here where it can be possibly beneficial. There's this range over here where it can actually be harmful. This is what it might be doing to the environment. This is what it might be, you know, it might be causing some physical dependence. But really, you didn't leave people with an answer on this. You left people with, here's some information, make up your own mind. Is that your intention?
1: That's exactly it. My my sense is that that we consistently underestimate the role that caffeine plays in in our culture. Uh, We we underestimate the roles it plays in our our daily routines. We underestimate the the actual effects that it has in our body. We underestimate the role it plays in commerce. I I think caffeinated products are worth more than $130 billion annually in the U.S. alone. Uh, and so, yes, I, I think we can continually underestimate caffeine and that it, it's a much more interesting drug than we give it credit for. And so it deserves like greater respect and more understanding.
3: Well, I wish that you could have come through and said, Lisa, I want you to think about caffeine this way. However, this was very um, mind-opening, and I think that people who want to take the time to read your book, which is called Caffeinated, How Our Daily Habit Helps, Hurts, and Hooks Us, I think it's it's thought-provoking, and I really appreciate your not only writing about it and researching it, but also coming in and talking to us today.
1: Well, thank you very much for your interest. It has been fun.
3: One last question. Um, so we've been speaking with Murray Carpenter, who is the journalist and author uh, based in Belfast. Murray, how can we learn more about the work that you do and your book, Caffeinated?
1: Uh, you can you can go to any of the local independent bookstores, and they all have the book there. And uh, you can visit my website, which is murraycarpenter.com.
3: All right. Thanks so much, Murray. Thank you. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on... Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business
5: and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. When was the last time you took a break from what you were doing? From the work that was piled up on your desk and just looked up? I know that during the course of my days I often forget to take a moment or two to just breathe, look up at the sky and dream. Terrible that I have to remind myself to breathe, but when I do, I feel energized because in those moments, I'm able to let go of the daily grind and think more about what I want to accomplish, how I want my business to grow. Sometimes those are the aha moments. If we all took a few moments out each day to stop what we're doing and dream a little about our business futures, not only would we feel a great sense of calm, but we may come to realize that these dreams can, in fact, come true. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com
0: This segment of Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of REMAX Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With REMAX Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com
3: Having worked in the Old Port with Maine Magazine, Old Port Magazine, and Love Maine Radio, I have spent some time across the way at Bard Coffee. And this individual, who is here to talk to us today, has also spent quite a lot of time at Bard Coffee. This is Brittany Feltovic. She is the manager of Bard Coffee. She has eight years of experience working with coffee and has been at Bard for six. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today. Thank you, Lisa. Bard is a really wonderful place to be. It's not just the coffee. The coffee is obviously great. but the location is um, it's really perfect. It's very central in the old port and people there seem to be a lot of there's a lot of like brain stuff going on there, a lot of meetups, a lot of stuff going on. What's that like to work in that kind of atmosphere?
2: it's really exciting honestly i think that we're lucky with our central location where we don't get just one type of person that comes in you know we have like our young teenagers that come in and then like the hipsters and then we have the guys in their suits and you know all of the artists from Maine or the restaurant people so it's kind of nice to just have like this different diverse group of people that are constantly coming in and being able to talk to them and see really what's going on all over town all the time and it's almost always busy, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it seems
3: like that. When you walk by, there are people sitting in the window. You know, yeah. there are people meeting. There are people in the back. It just—it seems like it attracts, um, just attracts people from all over. Definitely, it does. Why would one choose to go
2: into the coffee field? I honestly kind of just fell into it. Um, I graduated high school and was my father told me basically that, okay, you're on your own after this. He's like, where do you wanna go? I'll give you a one-way ticket. So I chose Maine, um, because my family's here. And he was just like, if you wanna go to college, like you're also on your own for that. So it kind of made me think a little bit more about like, well, is there anything that I actually want to do right now? And there wasn't. So I came to Maine and applied to a bunch of jobs at the mall, and Starbucks was the first one to call me back and had probably one of the most amazing interviews I've ever had where the manager there was just like exuding all of this passion for coffee and I was like whoa I've never even thought about like all the different things that go into it like from the farm level to you know the roasting level and the brewing level so it just kind of made me excited to learn about that since I wasn't going to school and that's where the hunger started and it never really stopped
3: Where are you originally from? Um, Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big leap.
2: Yeah, yeah. My dad was in the military and we got really lucky. So I was there for all of elementary school and all of high school. And when you can't really live there, though, afterwards. It's just so expensive and there's not a lot of jobs. So I was like, I guess I'll come to Maine. (laughs) And you have family here. Yes, yes. His sister is here and um, her three daughters, and I'm really close with them. So as you've gotten to, well, first of all, did you end up working at Starbucks? Yeah. Yep. I worked there for about nine months, and then that manager left to work at a local company that has since closed down, and I basically followed her. And after that closed down, um, a friend of mine was doing the art for Bard, And he was just like, go and, you know, apply here. It's a really great place, really great people. And I did. And that's where I've been ever since.
3: It seems to me that it requires um, a very unique skill set. Not only do you have to know coffee, but you have to know people. You have to know business. You have to do some – you have to do managing. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's a very – it's, it's, it requires some important skills.
2: Yeah, I think that's part of the reason that I really like it, is that it's there's always a challenge every day, like juggling all of those things. And I like multitasking and doing a lot of things at once, so it's kind of perfect for somebody like me.
3: <laughs> and what has it been like to be living in Maine, having been in Hawaii at, oh, no, Maine. Yeah, at first it
2: was a big shock, honestly. Um, I had always come here during the summers, so that was my only kind of knowledge of what Maine could be like, and I was younger. Um, as an adult, I didn't like it at first. I, I found it really hard to make friends, everybody was kind of already in their own thing. Um, but once I moved into Portland, that's when I saw the light. <laughs> Like, I love the fact that it has the small town vibe, plus the city still going on, and can walk around the streets, and I can't go anywhere without knowing somebody, but at the same time, I, like, it has really great food, and yeah, I just love it.
3: <laughs> you talked about the art at Bard, and that's something that I've noticed before, is mm-hmm. that it's, it's a very consistent thing. There's always somebody being featured on the walls, yep. and I really like that. Why has that been important to your store? I think it's
2: just a really nice way to connect with that community and there's also just a lot of talented people in the city and it's a fun way to kind of like change up the ambiance a little bit here and there like sometimes we'll have really large pieces sometimes we'll have more condensed like the clocks that we have right now are pretty cool and it's just a fun way to be able to showcase what the city has to offer.
3: Do you have the opportunity to um, create a relationship with the artists themselves?
2: Yeah. Yeah, we have many artists that are repeats that come again and again like the same time every year. So it's really nice to be able to have
3: that. My daughter who's in college now, she worked for a sadly no longer in existence coffee shop in our town and she really enjoyed the social aspect but she also really enjoyed crafting the coffee. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid it's made her rather spoiled now because her <laughs> college has only a major chain on campus, and I won't name them. Yeah, But she doesn't like them nearly as well, and she, th- th- she really has developed a palette, it seems, from that experience. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that for you. I definitely had more of an
2: experience enjoying crafting coffee at Bard than any other place that I've ever worked at. Um, especially when you're working for a company that has a connection with the roasting and the farming level, the barista is the last person at the end of that chain and they're the person that can mess up all of that hard work. And when you're working for a company that you know is so involved with all of that, it makes you more proud to want to serve the best cup of coffee that you can serve because you don't want to let any, everybody else down in that chain. So where does your coffee come from? We get it from all over. Um, We, Central America, South America, Africa, we get a lot from uh, like Indonesian countries as well. We kind of just find the best of the best is our big goal, just to find interesting coffees. Who's responsible for choosing?
3: where the coffee is coming from?
2: Bob Garver, who's our owner, does all of the source trips, so he pretty much has the best job on earth and gets to go to any coffee farm that he wants to go to. Um, He's really great about establishing relationships that we can keep getting coffee from these people every year too, which is really, really exciting to be a part of that. Um, A lot of companies say that they do that, but don't necessarily actually do that. I think a lot of the times he won't go to a new farm. Instead, he'll just, like, when he goes to Honduras, he has two farms that he visits every single year. And the change that's happened since us getting their coffee has been really remarkable, too. Like, there's one farm who didn't even have electricity when they first started, and now there's lines going up the mountains. So it's just kind of neat to be able to
3: see all of that happen. So once you've created this relationship with the farmer and you're bringing in the coffee beans, what's the next step? The next step is to do
2: roasting of it and just kind of sampling it at different levels and see where it likes to be. And Bill, who's our head roaster, is really great at fine-tuning and finding that sweet spot of what it's going to taste the best at. Does he, have, does he have a roasting facility here in Portland? or Our roasting facility is in Topsum. And it's pretty awesome. <laughs> so, you've spent time there. Oh, yeah, yeah. I go up at least once every week. I do, there's a training cafe there. So, I get to bring all my baristas there. It has the same exact machine, same exact pour over setup. So, I get to throw them in and just have them sit there for six hours and just make coffee <laughs> over and over and over again. You must be pretty
3: caffeinated by the time you leave there. Yeah, yeah. I've gotten good practice, though. <laughs> So this is something that I'm also interested in. I know um, I read the autobiography of the founder of Starbucks, and it was really important to him that when they went through this big reorganization, everybody made a consistent espresso. Mm-hmm. And the espresso was like, that was the thing. You start with that and you do it really well. Yeah, It sounds like you have a similar um, process that you work with oh, yeah. people at your store.
2: Yep, definitely. Um, we don't start with espresso necessarily for our training, just for the way that our cafe works out. Um, we've have, I don't know if you've seen, but we have the pour over bar that we do. So most people, we start on register, and then we get them to go on to pour-overs and make sure that they can craft, like, the perfect pour-over. And then espresso is kind of the last thing because it's honestly one of the hardest, I think, because it's this constant moving target that's affected by, you know, the air temperature and the humidity levels and even, like, the level of the amount of coffee that's in there. And there's so many different factors, so they really need to be able to understand how to change that and how to make it taste good.
3: I wasn't even really familiar that uh, pour-over was a thing until, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it seems like it's become more popular in this neck of the woods. Yeah. Why is that? What's the difference between a pour-over coffee and a brewed coffee? Fundamentally, it's not really that
2: big of a difference. Um, the big thing is just that you are doing it manually. So it takes a skilled barista to be able to do the work of a machine. Like with just a regular brewed cup of coffee, you know that it's gonna be good every time because that machine is set with all the correct parameters and it's doing the same thing over and over and over again. So I think it kind of just shows the expertise of the barista if they can you know, make something just as good as a machine. Um, For us, we like to have it just to have the different options we have, you know, two coffees that are ready to go every single day, and then we have an additional five on the pour over board that you can get at any time. So if you don't like, you know, what the coffee of the day is, then you have these other options. Or if there's like a specific special coffee that's on the board that you want, like currently we have one that is like a dollar extra a cup, and you can only get that on pour over. So I think it's just nice to have the different options available to you.
0: There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines carefully prepared by experienced professionals coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com.
3: It's funny that I'm sitting here having this conversation with you, because I'm really a tea person.
2: Yeah, so it's OK. For,
3: <laughs> I, I, I actually, I enjoy espresso, but it's more for the caffeine of it, Yeah, which I won't admit to. Well, I've just admitted it to everybody. So but <laughs> <laughs>
2: Everyone knows now. Everybody knows now.
3: Um, But if I were a coffee drinker, what is the difference between, like, a light roast, a medium roast, a dark roast? I mean, what are some of the things that people who actually drink coffee and really enjoy it, what are some of the things that people are looking for? Basically, the darker
2: that you roast a coffee, the more that you're kind of masking the flavor honestly in my opinion Um, the darker that you roast a bean the more that you're kind of just getting this smoky charcoal essence out of it which some people really enjoy like that's what they're looking for in a cup of coffee they want that smokiness there and that kind of depth Um, but when you do a lighter or a medium roast coffee a lot more of those like sweet kind of fruity characteristics can come out in a cup of coffee that most people don't think of when they're thinking of a cup of coffee. And there are times where I've had coffee that tastes like a cup of tea, like it's so delicate. And those are my favorite cups, honestly. It's almost like a cup of wine where you're finding all of these amazing nuances that it's just a factor of what they're doing at the farm level. So roasting just helps to bring those
3: out. Well, I'm glad you said that because I have always felt like the reason that for me coffee um, I, I couldn't get into it it was it was just it was like almost like hitting me over the head. It was so strong, and yeah. for me, for my palate, it just it often tasted so bitter. Mm-hmm. But it's good to hear that really that it's not there are there's a range. Yeah.
2: There totally is, and it also takes a lot of practice, honestly. When I first started drinking coffee, I was that girl that put toasted marshmallow syrup in everything and like a bunch of cream. And when I started working at Bard, they were like, "Okay, pull me a shot of espresso." I was like, "Okay, here you go." They're like, "No, you need to taste it." I was like, "Oh, I don't, I don't drink espresso. Like, I don't drink, I don't really drink coffee." And they're like, "Well, you're going to if you want to work here." So. After forcing myself (laughs) to drink it and drink, I make all of my employees drink their coffee black, like the same thing. And after a while, you tend to not notice the bitterness as much and then focus more on those pleasant flavors. And then all of a sudden it comes together. I think I had my aha moment maybe after a year and a half. It
3: took a while. Well, that is fascinating. I, I, I... And, you know, it's very interesting for me as a doctor because caffeine has at some points been vilified. So it's it's a bad thing. Nobody should yeah. ever drink coffee because coffee's really bad for you. And then most recently, we've heard that coffee use has been linked to a decrease in multiple sclerosis. So we don't really know whether it's, it's good or bad, good or bad yeah. but clearly people like it. And I'm often with people who like coffee. So now... To know that it only takes a year and a half. Maybe I will eventually enjoy it myself. (laughs) Just do
2: like one cup a week.
3: (laughs) It's also interesting because it seems as though this idea of crafting and crafting on a a smaller scale is becoming more and more important. The the pour over. You know, people get to choose what it is that they're drinking, what it is that their own tastes um, are more associated with. And and this is something that I think, you know, we used, used to all be like Sanka drinkers like back I don't know, 40 years ago or whatever, but now everybody gets to be different. Yeah,
2: I think it's nice, and I think it's nice that people are appreciating quality in a way that you know a lot of people are attracted to, the great beers and the great wines and the great restaurants, and I feel like coffee's kind of that last thing that everybody's now starting to pay attention to, which is really great.
3: There are even pairings that go on with coffee, from yeah. my understanding. Yeah. So and it's, and it's interesting because it's not just uh, coffee goes well with chocolate, for example. Coffee goes well with lots of different things. Oh, yeah, definitely. So have you explored any of those? Um, not personally. I'm
2: not very good at the whole creativity of pairing things together. Um, but the competitions that I just came back from – their barista competitions and part of it is they all have to make a signature beverage and that signature beverage is supposed to highlight the flavors that they're finding in the coffee not necessarily mimic them so i've had a lot of interesting drinks that you wouldn't think that those things would go together to elevate this coffee but they totally do like i think i had one this weekend that had um pine tree syrup and clove in it and it somehow elevated the, like, citrus level of this coffee. So it's really interesting the different combinations
3: that you can do. It's almost like making a cocktail. I really love that. I, I love knowing that, you know, something brings out something else in in coffee, for example. And I think you're right that it, it does seem like kind of the last, the final frontier. Yeah. But it is, again, so different than it almost seems as though we got to be a a bit of a homogenized society you know everybody's going to eat the stuff that tastes like this everybody's going to eat the stuff that looks like this Um, but now we've had to almost retrain our palates and get to back to a place where we can taste the the subtle things the the pine essence or you know whatever it is that the beans are are bringing out you've worked at bard now for six years you've been in coffee for eight years Mm -hmm. what does the future look like for you I think that I would just really
2: like to soak up as much knowledge as I possibly can and I'm in a very good environment for that surrounded by many talented people that have been in the industry for a very long time Um, I'm also supported by somebody who my boss Bob who is willing to send me to anything that I want to go to like there are barista camps and these competitions and everything that I get to go to I feel like I'm learning more and more each time Um, I would really like to learn more about the roast process. I know a fair amount about being a barista and I think it'd be really nice to kind of go to the roasting side and eventually, you know, go to a coffee farm and see what that's like. It's so easy to look at all of these pictures and try to figure out how everything is actually done, but I feel like it's one of those things that until you're there experiencing the process, you don't really get
3: it. It's pretty great that this all stemmed from your father saying, okay, Here's your ticket. Where do you want to go? Yeah. And you taking a chance and getting this job at originally at Starbucks and now at Bard and just the fact that you've kind of you, you've stayed with it and you've kept layering your experiences and going deeper and deeper into the process. I mean, you've received this great education having started from not even really knowing which direction you wanted to be educated in at all.
2: There were times definitely where I wasn't sure if it was going to take me where I needed to go. Um, but just sticking through has really paid off for me, and it's been a very rewarding experience, and it's starting to get to the point with my family where they understand that I am doing really well, and this is something that's really good for me, and I'm making as much money as them and don't have student loans, (laughs) also a bonus. (laughs) But yeah, it's been a really great experience. Brittany, how do people find out about BARD? Most people find out about it by walking down the street, seeing a Starbucks, and then seeing this weird little local coffee shop across the street and taking a chance on it. But a lot of people have been, our social media has been growing a lot, so I think that that's one aspect. I um, figured out Instagram finally this year. <laughs> I feel like everybody's been doing it for years, but it's been really, really fun. And most, mostly everybody that finds out about it, they're just like walking in. And we still have people, we've been open for six years. We still have
3: people to this day that are like, how long have you been here? I've never been here before. Now for people who are out of town and are maybe planning an old port trip, do you have a website? Yep, it's www.bardcoffee.com and it has
2: a little bit about the shop and then obviously the coffees that we're currently offering. We have
3: a blog on there as well. You can definitely check out. Well, I appreciate your coming in and talking to me today and my job is also very fun because I get to learn things, and today I've learned a lot about coffee. As a non-coffee drinker, that's particularly um, intriguing to me. Hopefully, so. it's inspired you a little. <laughs> it has. It has inspired. <laughs> I mean, I, I know that there are food that I there are foods I now eat that I didn't eat when I was younger, and it just happened with time. So maybe maybe coffee will become one of those things. Yeah. We'll see. We've been speaking with Brittany Feltovic, who is the manager of Bard Coffee, which happens to be right across Tommy's Park from where we're sitting now. Um, People who are listening, go in and visit Brittany at Bard. And Brittany, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 184, Caffeinated. Our guests have included Murray Carpenter and Brittany Feltovic. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle. I hope that you have enjoyed our caffeinated show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life.
0: Love Main Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. Love Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belial is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Susan Grisanti, Kevin Thomas, and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Content producer is Kelly Clinton. And our online producer is Ezra Wolfinger. Love, Main Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love, Maine Radio Facebook page or go to www.lovemainradio.com for details.